All right, let's let's start here. Thanks so much for for joining, Lara. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Do you want to kick kick it off, Julian? Hello, Laura. <laughs> it's so nice to meet you. Hey, uh, the uh, I've been following you on Twitter for such a long time, and uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to meet in quote unquote in person in this way. Right? Uh, you have um, you've been an entrepreneur in the same company for longer than almost anybody that I think I know, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that is, it's now 10 years or whatever. It's about to be the 10th year anniversary on LinkedIn anyway. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, so I want to correct that. Maybe I'm not. Yes. So we started okay. this company first as another business. Like mm -hmm. we, started a company that was called pop out really and that is still the entity that we're using mm -hmm. it was the same founders me and my co-founder simon yes and pop out was meant to be like a like a what do you call it? like a farfetch but for emerging designers like farfetch is for all the designers that you know and we wanted to like give emerging designers like a launch platform we started executing on that right. like shipping was one of the the challenges we ran mm. into there are lots of other challenges but shipping was one of them and then we pivoted and um kind of focused on building shipping software full time but yes i think this like shipo launched like yeah eight ish yep. years ago maybe a little more than eight years but that is that is kind of the, the uh, shipo idea that we've been working on and um but yeah, I've been working with yeah, my, my co-founder Simon for, for 10 years, like one way or the other. Yeah. And I think it is one of those things where honestly, like recently, especially in like the, the I don't know, the, the height of like 2020 or something, I was like, <laughs> oh, all these young startups, like a year old or something or three years old, getting insane valuations. And here I am, I've been working on this for so long and my valuations <laughs> are roughly the same. And I've been feeling like bad about that. But now, now I'm feeling pretty good. Like a, an eight-year-old company is a bit more resilient. Um, and then I've, it's actually, it's quite interesting. I'm looking around at like the companies that are, you know, successful today. And like that, yes. they're, they are, they have been around for a while. Like recently you look at a company called Alloy. They're like a, a banking or like FinTech mm -hmm. API company. They right, celebrated yeah. seven or eight years. and like, huh, I didn't know that. I met this guy, Sean from- From Stern, yeah. <laughs> it's a stored from stored and he was talking, he's also been doing this for like seven or eight years like huh right. when you read those TechCrunch articles it seems like a breakout mm -hmm. success over like stored race there a large round like a year or something ago and then you meet them in person and realize he's i remember been, like, working during at my last financings at braider like, back in the day and being like we're only two years old like being not really the initiation <laughs> of the company but the time that we had been in new york like deliberately shortening it you know, to, to make us feel yeah. like it's cooler, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to investors or what have you, but I, but that, yes. you know, I don't yes. think you can bend the 10 year arc that, yeah. that much, can't. right. You really can't. And, and, and it is, but it is frustrating when you have been going at something for so long and you see these, these like, like in 2021, especially like these companies coming out of nowhere and just get like, 100x like off of a million dollars in revenue <laughs> they're yeah. like getting these 100x valuations and it's just like am i crazy yeah. like what what is happening yeah. here but mm -hmm. what 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 happened yeah. is like that was just not real um it does it takes a decade <laughs> to mm -hmm. truly build a, a company like 
my experience at ship was was i was in that hype cycle and we raised a, a ton of money really early on and we didn't have product market fit and ultimately we did not survive um but it is it's really just grinding it out over those many years focusing on your customers taking capital when you really do need it um when versus like just taking it because you can um into building like an enduring business but it is it, it's that it takes a it takes a long time um but but it does annoy me as well looking at those articles yeah. on the, all these companies um that just raise huge evaluations yeah no it's been it's it's interesting but yeah as you as you said like i think there's that hype cycle um that uh mm -hmm. happens and it'll happen reoccur every few years uh but yes i've just been mostly surprised about looking at or meeting a bunch right. of entrepreneurs that i've i've only met on twitter or or over email and having conversations with them about like their companies and it turns out they've been at this for a pretty long time as well much right. longer did you, than did you feel funding uh, how, how did it feel uh, in terms of choosing partners uh, you, you spoke probably, you, there's been a number of sort of financings mm -hmm. throughout this, this eight or nine year period. And, yeah. uh, and you talk to a lot of people, I, it's, you ended up with a certain set of people on your board, a certain set of people that were angel investors, all these other things. Uh, and, and so to someone who's just starting something now, like what are, what are mistakes that you feel that a, a repeat person could avoid or uh, ways, uh, frames, lenses to use that are not obvious the first time that you're doing something? Yeah. So I think here it goes back to valuation again. I think repeat, like, okay, I'll, I'll take, I'll take a few steps back. Like what we've done is um, we've raised a few round, rounds of financing. <laughs> I actually don't remember how many, the last one, the last one was um, at the end of 2021. I want to say, yeah, and um, that was led by Bessemer. It Congrats. was uh, finally the the billion dollar mark, and um, thank you, thank you. And um, we've always like we've we've had Bessemer on our board for a while. We've had um, Human Square Ventures, and then D1 was one of our more recent investors. But we've kind of like just taken money from investors over and over again who believed in in shippo and um i think that was that was a a big part of um yeah our, our fundraising success like once we found someone we who really had okay. conviction and that bessemer in this case and someone we enjoyed working with like would they just you know always double down again when when we when we we're doing well and preempted those rounds before we could go out and raise so that's been a, a really awesome partnership um part of those kind of preemptive rounds what happens though is that you have a term sheet and and those term sheets um, right. like you know right. it's you don't have a competitive situation so it's typically a, a slightly lower valuation mm -hmm. than what you could probably get if you were to go out and and like shop it around and get a bunch of other offers and um i think what we like in the moment it was like you know it, it felt counterintuitive but in hindsight i i i'm really happy with this like we like, we're always okay with those valuations that were a right. little lower compared to what we pro probably could have gotten um, if we were in a competitive process because we like mm -hmm. working with and we still do like we like working with Bessemer we we know them we've we've known them well and um and never right. optimized for like the highest valuation possible and I think especially at the like in in our last round of financing like I've had those conversations with my own team, like with, with my co-founder, but also with, with people at Bessemer is like, 
it's a crazy world out there right now. We could probably go out and get much higher valuations than like a billion and a bit more. And like, like, wh wh why should I not just do that? And um, and in again, like in, in hindsight, I think like mm -hmm. this is this is a good valuation. Like Vesmer does like their their they use like their like the right multiples. Right. So you look at the rule of forty. Like they have mm -hmm. clear frameworks of investing and setting valuations. And it's, it's something that we can grow into over time. It's not a you know like a, we're not running into the kinds of troubles where like the valuation is just not based on any framework at all. And like there's no way for us to grow into that. And I think that is that is maybe something that's a little counterintuitive. Like at, at that point in time, like mm -hmm. you know, a, a higher valuation would have felt nice. It would have been, you know, something yeah. nicer press release, like more attention, um, probably like less, not even less dilution because investors yep. want a certain like uh, ownership no matter what. So mm -hmm. at a higher valuation, it is more just more money and the same dilution. Um, but yes, I think that's that's those were the right decisions. And then. More capital is not always <laughs> not. healthy. Like you, you <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it, the um, did you at some point believe that more capital would just allow you to do more things? It's interesting because I mean I've raised a lot of money. Kevin Kevin deliberately has the opposite view, where he's like, I take yeah. the smallest amount possible. Now I, I still yeah. have a lot of anxiety <laughs> about that type of attitude. It sounds like you found a, a path in the middle or something like that. Is that right? I would love to hear from from Kevin about this at some point as well, and 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 hear your uh, ex experience and expertise. Like on on our end, like right now, I think right. given the downturn, mm -hmm. would like to have a little bit more money in the bank. But we raised a really large amount, and like we always raised the points when we didn't, when we weren't run, running out of money, so we didn't like really need capital. We still had money in the bank, just added to our reserves. So we're, I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about the amounts that we've raised. Um, and it is, it, it just forces you, especially yes. in this environment to like mm -hmm. be a little bit more frugal and make those hard trade-off decisions and like just focus and you can't spread yourself too thin. And that is, that is super healthy. Like having a clear understanding of where does the company really want to stand out? Like mm -hmm. where do we want to compete? We can't do everything for everyone at once. And it's like forcing us to have a bit more clarity on the yeah. strategy side. I, I saw, Kevin, so what I, do you I took think? The, like what's, the what's opposite been approach at my last uh, company yeah. ship and, and raised way too much money. So um, we, we raised and not all compared to valuations these days, but back in, back in 2016, um, we raised like at a 250 valuation on like, I think it was like $2 million in gross revenue <laughs> with, ne with negative yeah. gross margins. Right. If you can imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, but again, there was a story behind it. Like the more volume yeah. we get and, and they, they go positive and all that. And I think that it could have worked if we, if our growth actually continued on. But what happened was we just didn't have the frequency of use that, that would, would have been like a DoorDash or Instacart or something like that. Mm. Um, so that's ultimately why it didn't work out. So there was, there was some method behind the madness. Um, but we really didn't need that much capital. Um, and what I think it, it did, it, it really, it bred um, just like trying to solve problems uh, and with throwing money at them. So For sure. bef before we actually had true market product market fit, like hiring a lot of like seasoned executives, um, trying to just like solve the problems with people. Um, and that is just 
it makes you go slower. It removes optionality. Um, also, you, you grow your board really quickly. It's it's hard to to right. be really nimble. And mm -hmm. so my outlook now is like with with Airhouse. Um, so we're not, we're five years old now, um, and I've deliberately tried to to raise the, the least amount of capital to to hit the milestones that we have. Um, and even tried to do things like we we are actually cash flow positive right now, so we don't actually need to to raise any, any more money. Um, and and we've we built products around that, so we, we can be. But mm. that that's how important and kind of like how much I got burnt by raising so much money. Um, and so and, and I really do believe that that with less money, with less people, it really breeds creativity and it forces you just more, just like you said, mm -hmm. um, forces you to, to, to just do the things that actually matter to your business, where if you have a lot of capital, it's like, well, we could do this or that and this and that. And then it just like, you're not going to be the best at everything and you should really just go and, and be the best at one thing. Um, and so I, I really do like having the small, like my, my, what I tell other people is like, have a smallest team small as small of the team as you can mm -hmm. until you hit those metrics until you know that you're going to be a category dominator mm -hmm. and then yes if there is a path to like raising a lot of money um and whether that's in i, I always look at high leverage like people so like engineering super high level uh, leverage um a lot of other like operations mm -hmm. people not su not super high leverage um so but when you do find that opportunity to really then that's the time that that's what venture is for right and i think that a lot of other people just look at it it's it, it may be easy to to, to raise money because then you're in the hype cycle and everything and then there's mm -hmm. so many things that come along with that and you do need to to live into that valuation um so that's kind of my perspective on things laura, so it can, it can change yeah. completely from what last time laura did you have an opportunity a top place where you did have a lot of cash at one particular point in history what was a place you can think of at time is what I really mean, where you were like, yeah, fuck it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you basically, you, you ever have that experience? It certainly happened to me where you basically blanket over a problem with cash. And then later on, you're just like, oh, I'll deal with that. Or like, we'll fix it. at the new version of we'll fix it at scale. Um, is, oh, oh my God. I think. Okay, so a few thoughts. First of all, like I yeah. did not know, Kevin, that your company is five years old already. That is, I, I always have been thinking about yeah. it as a as a new company that you just started. That's amazing. And the capital positive part is another amazing part as well. I think there was a time like when in Silicon Valley we're talking about if you're cash flow positive, you're probably mm -hmm. not aggressive nope. enough. It's like no, it's a completely different mindset right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's just it's just interesting. It's super interesting how those kind kind of you know, like these kinds right. of statements, blanket statements can change overnight. Um, when we, like a time when we've Fuck got it. too much capital and we just like, <laughs> I don't know, blanketed over things. Um, I think it was for sure a, a, a situation. Let's see, like we've, I wish we started building ha. engineering mm, teams outside of the US sooner. Mm. And it is such a luxury. Yeah, it's such a luxury thing to say like, oh yeah, we're just gonna integrate a whole lot of carriers mm -hmm. and we're gonna do it with like right, all yeah. the engineers in San Francisco. <laughs> and, 
And yeah, I mean, I think it's just like too much capital. Mm -hmm. It does not like it doesn't force right. you to think about how to how do you do these things more efficiently. How do you? Yeah, that that those kinds of discussions that we're we're having. Do you right want to break now, that down for people listening? Like, I'm like so how interested. You, um, how your yeah. your business works? Obviously, I know it very inside and out. Uh, well, not as much as you, but yeah. um, like how what is what does a carrier integration do? Yeah. More engineers obviously means more carrier integrations. Uh, how does that, how does that work? Yeah. No, and I, I realized we started <laughs> yes. off in this podcast without even talking about people know who is. you are. So Laura. I'll give it a, a, <laughs> I wish. Um, so we are, I mean, we're a, a, like a shipping software platform. Um, we have a network of shipping providers. So we're multi-carrier shipping API, um, uh, a network of shipping providers in the US and now also internationally. And then our customers, they connect to our API. They can start shipping right away with all, all kinds of carriers around the world. And um, wherever applicable, we also have economies right. of scale and give our customers access to discounted shipping rates. That is more relevant for SMBs, less relevant in the like mid-market and enterprise space. And um, then we do a bunch of shipping adjacent functionalities as well. So tracking, returns, insurance, everything shipping related, like through a through a single API. Our customers are like we have an SMB business where our customers are like businesses shipping on, on Shopify, Etsy and, and or selling on Shopify and Etsy and, and everywhere else on the internet. And then we have like a, a, a mid-market uh, like business that includes like 3PLs. We'll work with a bunch of 3PLs as well. And then we work with a bunch of platforms and, and marketplaces that power SMBs. So um, yeah, we power Squarespace as an example. Right. We power like Whatnot, Go, which a bunch of those like marketplaces and, and e-commerce platforms. Um, okay, and then part of like the foundational product that we're offering is we connect you to shipping carriers and you don't have to do the integrations one by one, but we've done all of those integrations. We take care of, of uptime and latency and, uh, maintenance and certification and everything all of like the, the work that you don't want to do on the carrier side of things um so integrating a carrier is like you think it's pretty straightforward but it is it is harder than it seems like again you have to do that integration you have to get certified by the carrier then you have to figure out like billing reconciliation surcharges everything that happens in the background is a whole lot of mess and then we there's most yes. of our 3PLs, they, they really care about the uptime. So they want to make sure that we are, we've done the work in like not being dependent mm -hmm. on third-party APIs and like we store everything locally and the, the latency requirements and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, and then there's like just maintenance of those APIs. Like they, they're every year, like you have to do some upgrades, right. like just things happen, like carriers change their APIs and things happen. So that is a, a big part of our business and it is kind of the foundation of everything that we do, but then we don't even get to talk about, you know, the fun features mm. of like reporting and data and analytics and everything else you want to build. It's like, it's a large engineering team that is working on, on just maintaining and uh, expanding kind of our carrier network. And um, yeah, I think right now we're starting to, or we, this year we started to figure out how to do that right. um, kind of more globally instead of just uh, US based. And, you know, in the past, we've had like a ton of those like, somewhat lazy discussions of like ugh, collaborating with someone in a different time zone is hard, like much easier to just do it here or like figuring out how to figuring out how to screen or interview For sure. uh, candidates right. in Brazil. Mm -hmm. is like a totally different skill set and really hard to figure out. 
So we've kind of punted those discussions um, about like international uh, team members until like, you know, we were forced to. And it's it's super healthy to like figure out how to become a company that is able to mm -hmm. like, collaborate with with team members in Brazil or or Romania or somewhere else in the world and how to set up these processes to be able to hire internationally because that carrier network is it'll keep expanding. It'll keep, you know, it just it, things happen there ad hoc all of the time and that it requires a large team on standby, but it just so doesn't do think, require that. So, large so team the to reason that, that you would, would have wanted to go more international for engineers, it sounds like, is just because um, they're obviously the one big benefit is you pay less for them versus San Francisco engineers. Um, is that is that kind of the main reason? And then you just have so many different yeah. integrations you need. So you, you need hundreds of engineers to do that. Is that your thinking around it? I think like for us that is the, the main reason it's the the cost part and then also being able to just be pretty flexible around roadmaps like just you know if if someone if a large customer comes in and they require an integration just to make right. like a carrier integration just to make this deal happen like right now it's like a reshuffling of our roadmaps versus because mm. we can't afford having oh, that's interesting. Just, you know ready to, to do a carrier integration um, yeah but i think having like we're we're excited to explore it. Like we're starting in Brazil. I think we're starting in uh, some Eastern European countries as well. And excited to just kind of have that as part of our, as part of what we offer, just a, a large, like just accept that we need a large team to maintain the, the so am, I, am I right to understand? Um, but and I have a follow-up question. This is fascinating to me. Uh, am I right to understand that your engineering work is spiky mm -hmm. in the sense that there's there's constant work that's happening at a steady state, but then you have these deal-focused sets of work that need to happen and the yeah. work the work quantity might spike by like a 300 percent over a short period of time and then come down that okay that is i would i would agree with that like it can be spiky and like sometimes right. it's deal related of this this 3pl just wants this obscure carrier mm -hmm. that no one else wants but we really need to integrate Many times it's also carrier related, like carriers make a change and like, they're not a, they're not tech yeah. organizations. So their changes are announced kind of late. And then mm -hmm. we, we all need to drop everything else that we're doing and scramble to support and the latest. Laura, I have a question about this is, I, I know you're, you're from Germany or Switzerland. Is that right? Which one is that? It's Germany. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I, okay. I, I have Germany. a lot of relatives in France and I'm French Canadian. And, and so I have a question about international yeah. engineers, but just generally about culture, I think, that I'm interested in. Um, it, the, uh, one of the reasons that yeah. people find themselves saying, oh, I need to hire SF engineers and I, I want to have a, you know, is it this culture of intensity that, that, that can occur in an SF office where, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. candidly, everyone's 20 just out of Stanford or whatever and, and, have, <laughs> and have no other lives, right? And and so as as you increase the geographic, yes. yep. uh, I don't maybe the word is diversity. I don't know, but the the spread outedness of the engineering teams, you also spread yeah. out the type of culture that a that a person comes from, and and so I'm wondering how you manage to keep the intensity up um, uh, when mm -hmm. people's various impressions of what working hard is co like collide or 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 are in conflict mm -hmm. so i had a quick yeah. wi-fi drop mm -hmm. just now but i think i got the the 
majority of the question. Um, so we, I'm curious about your companies. Like, did you ask no. everyone to come back to the yeah. office? We're, like, we're a third in the Bay. The um, and then everybody else no. is remote and we haven't, we haven't, uh, yeah, mandated anything. Yeah. yeah, no, it's the same for us. We're like probably a third in the Bay area and then a bunch of people in Austin. Um, and then almost fully distributed. Mm -hmm. Like we have some in, in New York, some in LA, some in Seattle and then everywhere else. So I, we can't really go back to be fully in office all of the time anymore. So just because of that, like, I think everyone went remote without like mm -hmm. a clear understanding yeah. of what it means to remote just out of, out of the, the COVID situation and coming out of it, like we realized that, okay, we mm -hmm. can't really go back to be in office just because of how we hired and, um, and how the company has evolved but we need to be much more clear about what it means to work at a remote company. And like you get all of that flexibility, which is like upside and like work like, just a whole lot of flexibility in your life. But then like, you also need to be willing to, to have a certain amount of intensity. Like if you, you know, mm. if you get that sort of flexibility from us and we've started just being more intentional about like what it means to be like distributed at, at Shippo and implementing that sort of culture. And then I think it really is like, much easier then to extend that to, okay, that, that mm -hmm. applies to people in, in Brazil and like Argentina and I don't know, Romania, wherever else we hire. And um, I think that's really been helpful for our like international hiring, just right. that we started becoming more asynchronous about and then how we document things, how we write things, how we, make decisions, how we prep for meetings, and then kind of the expectation of you get a ton of flexibility, mm. but if, if needed, like wake up early to do a call, stay up late to do a call. And it's not every day. It's just like, if needed, like, please, like, let's do it because you get a ton of flexibility everywhere else in life. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's helped. And it's also right. like made it easier to be inclusive right. with people who are not Bay Area. Um, and I think that sort of, inclusivity then helps with like people feeling like they're they're a part of this company a part of this right. team not like some satellite office somewhere else and they get to participate the same way as everyone else does and be part of the culture the way that everyone else does and then like i think mm. when you buy into that like that's where the intensity comes in um like bringing that in like they like they're no different like the team members like around we have team members around the world right now like they're no different or in no different position compared to team members based in the Bay Area. And um, I, and, and people opt into that sort of environment. Like they want to work mm -hmm. at a company that is distributed. And I was surprised is, during, um, during uh, COVID to interview separately. people during a phase where I was interviewing uh, and where people would be like, I can't wait to return to the office. And I was like, ah, okay, thank you for the clarity. You are not for us. Mm -hmm. Like that is, I, I really appreciate yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a big yeah. in, in office just, person. I, I'll send them to you. It, it's it, what, it, what I really, the, the place where this was the most clear to me at my last company, there were like, not only were there essentially, I suppose, 10 offices in 10 different cities, really. Right. Um, uh, what I found was is some people mm. were remotely calling in to essentially every call. And then there were a set of people that were mm. in a meeting room together. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I would, I would watch yes. side yes. conversations occur in a meeting room where ha 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 joke between two, three people, <laughs> then person yeah. on remote is like, 
yes. wait, what, what just happened? Like they don't get why other people are laughing, right? They're not laughing at them to be clear, but they're just like laughing. Yes. And, and then, so immediately it, yeah. there's insiders and outsiders like right there. Right. And so I had to, it, I had to yeah. be deliberate. Uh, and I think I got this maybe from Toby Lutke indirectly from Shopify, where I was like, I think he he said something like, mm -hmm. I can never be in a meeting like in person when there's any remote people, because it it basically downgrades th that person yeah. straight up. And so I made a big effort to just always yes. be in a meeting remotely yeah. to ensure that the egalitarianism, I don't know if you've felt something like that, yeah. know, or if you've made any kind of rules of that sort or whatever. Yeah, so we don't, like, we don't really have, we don't make people come back to the offices right now. Like we have an office in San Francisco that we haven't been able to get rid of, unfortunately. But um, people come whenever they want to. And it's like, I think they self-organize or the team self-organizes that Thursday is an in-office day for, for people who are interested in coming to the office. I'm not coming every Thursday. And it's, it's like, right. so it's not like, it's not as if I'm making mm. people come to the office or people want to meet me. They have to be there on Thursday. But I, I, I come sometimes. And I think it's it's just about making sure that kind of Bay Area execs are not calling in people like on certain days. And it is it is like a self-organized part. I think anything that's self-organized is completely fine. Like I'm not gonna like prohibit people from meeting up when there's an opportunity mm -hmm. to, to meet up. So I think you can go too far the other direction. Like self-organized stuff is is completely fine, but we're not we're mm -hmm. not like making it mandatory for people. And then when we do happy hours or like any social events, we try to make right. sure that we have of something for yeah. the remote as well. Like we do some in-person events, but then remote events. And um, and we just actually did our our um, oh this this is fun. Like last like offsites are mm -hmm. I mean it, essential to make this kind of remote work possible. And when throughout COVID we had the the experience that when we do offsites, like you only meet up with your own team. Only I only get to see the exec team, but like no one else, because I'm doing my offset with the exec team and there was no one else around. And um, so our our people leader came up with this offsite approach where we have an offsite calendar and the offsite dates are set, the locations are set, and managers get a certain amount of offsites and they sign up for the offsite locations and dates. And then at that location in the same hotel at the same time, oh, like a bunch great. of Shippo teams are having offsites. Huh. So they get to socialize across teams as well. So we have those like, working sessions that are with their own teams and then like social sessions that are cross cross functional and people get to meet meet teams from from other uh, from other parts of the company. So that's been that's been just very, very cool. Mm. And people like this offsite calendar. They like the predictability. They know where they're going and when. Right. Right. And um, and those are exciting locations like Nashville, and Phoenix and Seattle. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, people are looking forward to, to traveling. Um, yeah, and we just did our whole company offsite as well. So we kicked off the year with our whole, whole company offsite in San Diego, which yes. is, I think, uh, like these are the kinds of investments you have to do if you want to lean into distributed. And then that comes like again with like you know you have the flexibility of you work from home the majority time the majority of the year, but then like depending on your level, we do expect you to travel. So if you're right. an executive, huh. you're probably traveling eight to twelve times a year, and that just comes with comes with the part of, of being uh, of being at a distribution company. Like you have to do right. 
the leadership offsites, you have to do the company offsites, you have, have to I'm curious. Team um, offsites. So there's you, a, a whole you, lot you guys of have been involved. based in the Bay and obviously hired remotely during COVID, but it sounds like you all, you also do want to hire um, even more remotely, especially for engineers. Do you, do you, um, um, for your, mm -hmm. and now you're, you're scaling your, your, um, your a growth company, um, do you, are you going to organize and take advantage of a lot of the Bay Area, like senior executives and have more people and build mm. your like exec team within the Bay Area? I ask because that's that's what I'm kind of leading towards. Um, but I think for certain functions like engineering, I think yeah. is like makes total sense. But like your core, as you build that, obviously you have an exec team yeah. already, but but um, um, uh, how, how, do, how do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a hard one because if we look at the distribution of our team members, we see that the extended right. leadership team is heavily concentrated in the Bay Area and then the, the leadership yes, team exactly. as well. And that's yeah, just because right. of the, the talent that's been brought up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it, it does seem inequitable and like could send the wrong signals. So on our on our leadership team, we have um yep. we have an eng leader based in Seattle. Uh, like lots of great talent in, in Seattle with the, the concentration of like some of the larger companies there. And then we have our people leader in San Diego. Yep. And she moved to San Diego during the, during the pandemic. Um, the rest of us are SF based. Wow. My co-founder Simon moved back to Germany during the pandemic. So he is, he is uh, in, in Germany. And I think that helps with kind of right, our story right, of right, even right. like a co-founder is fully like remote and coming to the office. Um, so, but yeah, still like we have our finance leader, our COO and our GC based in the Bay area. Uh, but it's a good split of like half of us in the Bay area and half of us distributed. And we've been, I think we've been like telling the ex exec recruiters that we're open to remote has been a plus because right. a lot of people are not open to remote for, for their execs. So I feel like we've seen a different like set of talent because we, we told the recruiters that we'd be okay with that. We even said we'd be okay with like right. European. Right. Like, uh, There's a, a few things. I have trauma here, so I feel the need to express myself. <laughs> that I, marketing is one of the <laughs> undiscovered things where if someone has not, product is a little bit more obvious because mm -hmm. like, who has built like, for example, a Dropbox like in uh, Toronto? There aren't many of them, right? Mm -hmm. And but it's also like the the best practices yeah. for a VP of marketing. It's they're just, they're just, there aren't that many people that have just scaled. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. We got to a hundred yes. million users or whatever the state is a hundred million in revenue. Yeah. Like those, those companies just don't exist at that pace. And you're never going to find somebody from an agency who is going to mm -hmm. be able to do that. And it's really unlikely that you'll find some old school, um, <laughs> like a dude from IBM or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Then it's it's gonna, you know, it's yeah. just not going to work. And, and, and the other lesson that I think I've recently learned is, uh, but you can do, if you find SF ish or tech, really tech based recruiters, then they have a standard of quality mm -hmm. and what mm -hmm. it is that you really want. And then those people can yeah. come from all over the place. And I've had some good wins. Yeah. I don't know if the, any of this resonates with you. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's also a question about like, do you want someone who is been there, done that? Are you willing to take a risk? Someone who's taking a step up, and if you're getting someone who's taking a step up, then yeah. like very if likely I, to the, get I, them somewhere outside of the area. I, I was just seeing the two of you sort of geek out over shipping just a moment ago, 
And, and <laughs> you know, it really reminded me of, of Jack Altman, who runs Lattice. And, and Jack, I think mm-hmm. he went through YC, if I remember yeah. correctly. We can get, we should get him on the show, but like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, he he clearly was not mm-hmm. in love with just at the very beginning, right? He wasn't in love with like performance reviews, right? Right? Okay. Right. Yeah. And and actually, I'm probably more in love with <laughs> yes. performance reviews yeah. now than he was then at the beginning, right? And <laughs> but but you become in love with performance reviews, and and he says he did actually right. he did fall in love with performance reviews and all the stuff that Lattice does, um yes. and. And yeah. so, uh, Kevin, I know yeah. eBay power seller early on, Yes, uh, Laura, at the very beginning, you were actually just building kind yeah. of an e-commerce store and encountered the shipping problem. And so I, I'm wondering whether you feel that you fell mm-hmm. in love because, you know, when, when people look invest, when investors like look for a company, they're like, oh, this yeah. person has to be in love with the problem. They have to want to do it for 10 years, <laughs> but you can also f- encounter those things and manufacture that along the way. So I'm curious about your path. Yeah. Yes. I I mean, in love is I'm obsessed Mm -hmm. with it. I'm not sure if I'm in love with it, Uh, but yes, like for sure, obsessed with it. And it's like, you're working on a problem. The problem's so big. Like shipping is such a big problem. The TAM is so big, but also different steps. Like you talk about even just in this room, like shipping, warehousing, like in warehousing, there are a whole lot of other problems. So, uh, but in, in shipping, it's like, you've got cross-border mm-hmm. tracking, returns, insurance, every carrier has a set of problems. Why is like pricing static and not dynamic? So why is like billing so hard to figure out? So there are so many problems in shipping that like, it feels, you know, I hate this cliche thing that people say at every like funding <laughs> announcement of like, oh, we're just getting started. But, like, it feels like that. It feels like that, that we're just, it's been like eight something years, almost nine, and we're just getting started. And like shipping, unfortunately, you know, because the TAM is so big, like to become relevant, you have to get a certain amount of scale. Mm. And it just takes time to build that scale. And like we just um, signed a partnership with, with FedEx. And Maybe I don't all the details. know how much detail tell us I'm everything. Into, but it's like when we started this business. No, tell me everything. All the know. <laughs> yeah. When we started this business, we were like, I think one of the problems that we were trying to solve was okay, you sign up for Shippo, you get like the, the carrier APIs, but you can't start shipping just yet because you need to go to the right, FedEx right. side or the UPS side to get your FedEx credentials and then negotiate your FedEx rates. And that was, um, that was like, then we came up with this idea of like, we should have this kind yep. of platform account or master account, whatever you want to call it. So when, when someone signs up, they can just start shipping right away. And then it goes through our accounts and we're the, we're dealing with FedEx and UPS and everyone there and they get paid through us. And that was met they with a lot idea. of resistance. Like the carriers did not like this idea. Um, they, they hate this idea. And we've always said like we aggregate scale and then eventually they're going to start liking this idea because we we have so many customers and we give them to custom, give them access to all these customers and we just like do all the marketing for them the customer support it's just so easy for them to tap into that volume yep. and it's taken us a long time like USPS was the first one that kind of agreed to this and then UPS like 3 years ago and just like a few weeks ago FedEx agreed to this as one of the like one of the big last big one in, in, in the US. 
And I remember when I first like started um, this business, <laughs> I wrote an email to like Fred Smith, just like, you know, I was like 22 or something. So write an email to Fred Smith, get guess his uh, email address. And I got a response from like his assistant. <laughs> and the response is basically, this is a really dumb idea. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> don't want to be a part of this. Like, why would we? Um, so yeah, it's taken us a long time to like aggregate this volume and get to a point where we can convince carriers that it is a good idea, but that is only like the first part of, right. of our business. And we've had this idea of like, we should do access to rates, like from day one, it's taken us like eight years to get there. And yeah, so it's, it's an obsession. It's an obsession. And there are so many small things that we can fix. And yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, so for, for anyone that doesn't know, yeah, me and Laura are both, both in the same uh, industry. However, yeah. it's an extremely large industry. Um, and I think we actually use, we use you guys for a bunch of stuff. And our partners do as well. But I could definitely relate to um, mm -hmm. you're not relevant until you're big enough. Um, so like how our business works at, at Airhouse, we basically mm -hmm. will match um, brands to um, 3PL, so for warehouses. And and also, Laura, while, while you probably didn't know we were five years old, um, is because we basically spent the first like two or two to three years in relatively like stealth um, because it took us so long to convince really good 3PLs that we were going to be a layer on top of them. Um, and so it was around getting some customers, going to shitty 3PLs, using them, getting more, getting better 3PLs. And then finally we got to the point of like quality liquidity that we, we had now, and now we're scaling the business. Um, but, but in the shipping industry, it's just so ginormous, but also I, I want to ask you, you this, Laura, um, to see if you've had the same yeah. uh, issues with, um, investors. Um, yeah, I think you guys definitely are the, the, the only, um, logistics tech player that's got a billion dollar, valuation which i that that is in i think that i think that's true think uh oh maybe stores in there too it yeah um ship up i don't, I don't maybe but I, I i can i, I can I, consider you guys true logistics tech both of, both of them actually have facilities yeah. um so like it, it, the experience yeah. that i've had is that investors just think of it as like a physical problem and that it it's really been one of the last um, uh, kind of industries to be touched and they kind of have stayed away from it. So a lot of VCs have theses about like today it's, it's generative AI and before it was crypto and all of this and, and, uh, logistics definitely doesn't fit into there. Have you had the experience either, um, on convincing investors that this is going to be a big market, um, a big market opportunity, you can actually do it or, also on the employee side, um, can you get people really excited to join? Because it, it it's not as Julian mentioned before. Like it, it, it doesn't. It seem like a like same with the performance management. Like it doesn't seem like a, a probably a passion for a lot of people. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. And even as I was talking to my co-founder about pivoting yep. from our e-commerce store to to look to shipping, like we had this discussion ourselves. Like, would we be excited to get out of bed for like the next ten years to to work on this? Right. And Simon wasn't wasn't sure about that. Um, and then we said, let's just take it a step at a time, and and we'll see. Like, what we'll see what yeah. we learn from it. And then we started just uncovering right. all of these like, yeah, issue like challenges that we thought like software should be able to fix. And we got we got really excited about that. 
Um, but yes, I think it's a it's a problem that people overlook. It is not a sexy problem. People don't get excited about shipping that easily. I think during right. the pandemic, because of all those logistics challenges that became mainstream finally, like it became more top of mind and like more VCs started getting into it. In terms of like fundraising, like I, I mean this in the nicest way. I feel like back then, like yes, ship yes. was a product that investors knew how to use and like how to use it for themselves. So like that was kind yep. of they could wrap yep. their head around it. They're like, yes, I want right. my packages to be picked up. I don't want to go to the post office myself. And for for Shippo, it was something where they like, yeah. well, why would I start a business? Like, why do I need to sell things on the internet and ship things? And they didn't quite understand that. So yeah, I think it was it's just not a use case. Like what we're building is not something that investors need to use or or touch themselves. And um, it's therefore kind of just harder to wrap their heads around compared to, I don't know, mm -hmm. mid journey or any immediate tool well that moment, they can right? play around with. Yeah, that's and, interesting. And it's, I, I'm wondering if exactly. uh, what you recall is your first experience where you were working on it with Simon and you shifted from, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, traditionally the metaphor they used to say is, uh, is you're pushing the boulder up, up the hill to the boulder is going down the hill and what that moment was, uh, mm. oh, oh my God, this is actually really happening, yeah. right? Versus we hate this and it's hard or something. Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was Shopify. Like right. back then the Shopify app store was um, just launching and we built our Shopify app like, as one of the first, like, or the first shipping company to build a, an app to the app store. Like by now it's become a crowded space, but that was, that was when it took off. And like up until then, it was hard because we we had a right. shipping API that no one really wanted to integrate. Um, integrating an right. API that's unproven with no volume is kind of does not make sense. So we built this dashboard and then connected it to the, the Shopify app store. And that's when it started taking off. Um, but then, of course, you talk to investors uh, like, oh, you're fully yeah. dependent on, on Shopify. Like. One of one of the investor isms that they always, always find something. What happens if this person has this product <laughs> in here? And all, yeah, when yeah. they're when they're writing blog posts, it's uh, and you yeah. will recognize yourself if you are listening, whoever you are. Uh, it, when they're writing blog posts, <laughs> they're like, "You got to piggyback off an existing platform and use their volume." And then when you do, they're like, "You are dependent on this platform," yeah. and you're like, "That's right, yeah. because you told me to." Uh, <laughs> so. So, uh, Laura, tell me, what does product market fit feel like when it happens? So what it felt like for us, um, it's, it's pretty specific. Like I was doing customer support myself. So what it felt like for us was like I was getting emails from customers, like questions about how to use the product. Right. My inbox started becoming just full with customer emails. And and th that's what it felt like for, for me. Um, I think there was a, a dashboard, of course, to look at where like the numbers went up, but like the most, the, the part that I remember the most is just like customer emails and not always, you know, like a lot of them were questions and, and product right. problems, but at least like customers were engaging with the product and like engaging I, I, so I much found, that they were willing to like, I did, we didn't have it at ship. Um, but um, I definitely say we would have it at an airhouse. I'd also um, equate it to when when customers start yelling at you um, because something is because something isn't working. Um, <laughs> well, well, that's that's a hard thing to do, but that that means yes. that you're 
actually doing something meaningful for their for their business and the more the more yelling that you have yeah. <laughs> um uh, it just it's it, it feels overwhelming um yeah. and that that was something that we didn't at ship we had an amazing product and people would just say how much they loved it but like we didn't have the pull it wasn't it wasn't like the overwhelming mm-hmm. like inbox and and mm-hmm. and and like support issues and all of that um we had to like go out and like we even julian and i we we we, we, we joke because we both had um su- subway ads uh in new york and like like w- we would have to try to convince people to use it and, and it just was it was people there's like it was a great like one-off experience but the the repeat rate wasn't really there um so we didn't have it and so when you that it is a it, but anybody that that felt the product market fit is just it, it you can really identify it and if you think you don't have it you you don't have it <laughs> you don't have it yeah mm-hmm. did you was yeah Airhouse totally born um, out of it was a problem the larger um and i'm sure you've seen the same problem as well um it was uh the the larger the customers were trying to trying to use ship were these small brands and they what they really wanted to use was like a modern um like high quality 3pl um and that really just didn't exist out there um and so that was the idea of like okay well we can build the software and then i also know like i don't want to run warehouses anymore like that that was something that was like a, a, an explicit yeah. decision. So, so there, there are some like modern 3PLs, but um, I would argue that those are not venture backable because they're really hard to scale. You can't scale people um, uh, like you like you can software. Um, so it was like, okay, let's let's try to find the best 3PLs out there mm-hmm. and they just make it a seamless pro- um, uh, a product. But yeah, it definitely was was born out of that. Yeah. Uh, and also even some inside baseball, like I. I tried to build it within um, Ship, um, and uh, we we had like an unreleased product that we were going to to release, but we just ran out of money. Um, and uh, it, this is another thing of when you take so much money, you have so much baggage, you have so many board members. Um, even the thought, like we had the amazing investor John Dorn on our board, like thinking about like I could only imagine. That like what he would think of, of of us pivoting and he being a part of like going and finding product market fit with a whole nother company like his time is like so valuable that it just it just doesn't make sense so um but we didn't have the option to continue on we ran out of money um so it's like okay let's let's just yeah. do this with a brand new company um but with all the learnings that we, that we had silicon valley is unique yeah. in that way where you make yeah. things they kind of succeed they kind of don't and then people are like, I love you more, right? It's, yeah. it's actually very rare. In Germany, I, well, I know, all, all I know yeah. is my section of Europe, right? <laughs> Slash Canadian Europe. And, and <laughs> it's not like that. It's not like that, right? They're like, they're like you fucking failure. <laughs> I knew I, that you were terrible and I never believed you yeah. from their bureaucratic like ice tower, yeah. right? And uh, that resonates yes. with you, it sounds like? Yeah, <laughs> yep. It fully, fully resonates with me. I think that's also why, like, starting a company in Germany is not not the most fun experience, and, and why I chose to do it here in the U.S. By the way, I saw this like super interesting story, uh, maybe for another episode of your podcast, of like two guys who started a fintech company and then it didn't go so well, and they like published a story just now where they refounded the company. They let go of like sixty percent of their of their team members. I kind of reset the the 
the cap table and like the, the valuation and kind of are starting it not from scratch, but like with this full reset, because it felt like they, they went in too fast and too aggressively and just had a bunch of things that didn't, you know, where they got in over their skis. And I, I thought that was like remarkable and very impressive to have this mm -hmm. courage to like culture. Culture is especially tough such a hard thing. Yeah, when it's remote here. Here's the thing that I, I have noticed myself is like, if that intensity is not like, if you can't feel it through the zoom meeting, it's not there. Right. And, and so my, my rule of thumb has been, you yeah. have to feel the intensity yeah. through the zoom, right. In order to make it work. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. hard in large meetings, right? Like in large meetings, mm -hmm. there's so many people I, I, that I, are just listening. I think that there's that no story is, is going to be interesting. Um, so I'll give you my perspective. And this was with me trying to continue ship. And uh, we, it was my, myself and my, my co-founder, Sarah, who worked for me at ship. And then we wanted to found this together. Um, I'm actually glad that we started fresh uh, because I think that if we would have taken a lot of the, the people at ship and, and brought them over, um, I think that there would have at that time. Also, we hired a lot of senior people, too. And like you just need a, a different type of person if you're going to like essentially refound a, a, a company. Um, but ever since we've, we, we, as we've scaled the company, we actually have brought in, um, uh, other people that worked with us before, but at the right stage. So like we got like the, the mm -hmm. first hires were startup people. And so that it'd be, in, I mean, I'll be interested uh -huh. to see if this is going to work. And also given like the crazy valuations in 2021, like there's just so many walking dead companies. Um, I don't know if there's going to be so much messiness and everything like this. Yeah. I, I don't know if you you can like reset the culture and like, because the, the expectations at one t time yeah. were just so high. Um, and then it's like, Oh, I like, I would think that it's probably easier just to, to start fresh, but also it's hard. Yeah, no, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, but you're completely right. Like people that join a company at that, like height, they expect it to be a rocket ship and keep growing. They're not ready for that. And all the baggage they've then, been like, through as well. Like they, they may blame you mm -hmm. or whoever and, and, and have some resent a mint for what happened. Um, so it is kind of, uh, it, it definitely was a, a good decision to start fresh. Not that we had another decision. We didn't have any money in the bank, but um, I'm glad that it kind of worked out the way that it did. Yeah. So Laura, when you think back into yeah. your uh, timeline, sense. who is the person Who's the stranger who you feel ultimately helped you the most when they had nothing to gain? Ah, the stranger that helped me the most. Um, so, I mean, this person like by now is no longer a stranger, but I, okay. So when we, when we, I, I remember, so my, my co-founder Simon, he was like going to some kind of event and overheard like in, in San Francisco, like a found, like a, startup event and overheard people talk about this investor who just like writes 25k checks while on the golf course and just like writes a lot of them so we reached out to that person um they are um it, his name is Ellie Ressa and he is yeah. like uh runs plug and play tech center and um yeah we we met up with with him at in Sunnyvale and pitched him back then, like still our e-commerce idea, which is really not a good idea. And <laughs> he like, said uh, something along the lines of like, hey, this is not a great idea, but you oh. have such an entrepreneurial sparkle in your eyes that I'm going to write this like 25K check. 
And it was like some hmm. weird like reason, like entrepreneurial sparkle is what I believe, what I, what I remember thing about our eyes. And we still have that check. And he's been, I mean, that just really, it, we moved to Sunnyvale. We worked out of the plug and play tech center office for a few months. There was free lunch, not very healthy, <laughs> but, uh, or maybe my choices were not healthy, not, not on them. <laughs> and, but it was it was great like we needed those 20 that that money to so like that resonates with me first, a great uh, deal MVP. uh a, a friend of mine who will remain nameless in this particular uh, uh podcast but uh who knows who they are I, I i have a long history of being kind of like ahead of a, the curve with things and so because i'm ahead of the curve in my personal life mm -hmm. uh people are always like that's stupid julian like about everything that ever happens. And so uh, I, I was sitting at a cafe and, uh, and I was talking with uh, my fiance, girlfriend at the time and, and this person and, uh, and he's like, you know what, Julian, I'm sick of doubting you. <laughs> and he uh, and he pulls out a checkbook right there <laughs> and he writes a check to me which by the way, I've never cashed and I've always kept. And the, uh, it was such a meaningful moment to me because cool. I really needed someone to believe. Right. Right. And that it be someone really close in my circle yeah. was so valuable to me. I'm never going to forget that moment. Yeah. I'm happy that someone saw the mm -hmm. entrepreneurial sparkle in your eye. Yes. And I'm sure it is visible to way more people now. I want to say thank you for the time that you spent thank with us. Thank you so much, Laura. This <laughs> yeah. was a blast. Thanks, um, and thanks everyone for listening. Hope hope, hope you, you uh, learned something. See you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the facts. It's the Second Time Founders Podcast. Talking tech news. The show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. We're coming from a real place. Plenty ups and downs. Got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and raw. Giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The Second Time Founders Podcast. More building, less talk.